Chapter Twenty of Flowing Gold by Rex Beach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ozark Briscoe, like his sister Allegheny, was studying hard and learning rapidly, but he had adopted an educational plan, a curriculum, so to speak, far different from hers. Whereas she lived between book covers and the thousand and one details of her daily existence were governed by a bewildering army of don'ts, Buddy had devised his own peculiar system of acquiring wisdom, and from it the word don't had been deliberately dropped. His excursion into the halls of learning, brief as it had been, had convinced him that books could teach him only words, whereas he craved experiences, ideas, adventures. Adventure comes at night. Pleasure walks by gaslight. Young Briscoe told himself that he had missed a lot of late hours and would have to work diligently to catch up, but he undertook the effort with commendable courage. It is said that all wish to possess knowledge, but few are willing to pay the price. Buddy was one of the minority. Early he adopted the motto, Money No Object, and it provoked him not at all to learn that there is a scale of night prices considerably higher than the scale of day prices. To find, for instance, that a nocturnal highball costs twice as much as one purchased during daylight hours. That phenomenon, by the way, had nothing to do with the provisions of the 18th Amendment. It merely explained why farmers went to bed early. They couldn't afford to sit up, so Buddy decided. He had learned a lot since leaving school, not only about prohibition, but also about speed laws, men's fashions, facial massage, the foxtrot, and the shimmy, Caviar, silk pajamas, bromo seltzer, the language of flowers, and many of the pleasures and displeasures of the higher intellectual life, such as love and insomnia. His education was progressing apace, for love is the greatest of educators, and Buddy was in love, madly, extravagantly in love. Love it was that accounted for his presence in Dallas and his occupancy of the governor's suite at the Ajax. A fellow in love with the most wonderful woman in the world couldn't afford to look cheap in his own hometown, could he? Of course, Dallas was not Buddy's hometown, but it had been his point of departure into the world, and it was the home of his bank account, hence some pride of proprietorship was pardonable. It gave him such a pleasing sense of importance to adopt the city as his own that he adopted everything and everybody in it. In spite of the fact that the train from Wichita Falls was behind time, one morning shortly after Buddy's arrival, he was still abed when Calvin Gray arrived at the hotel. Instead of disturbing the slumbers of youth, Gray went directly to the detective who had telegraphed him, and for half an hour or more the two talked. Later, during the course of a leisurely bath and shave, the new arrival pondered the information he had received. Here was a problem. Having dressed himself, he strolled around to Coverly's place of business and interviewed the jeweler. Sure, he has bought quite a bit of stuff in the last few days, Coverly told him. He was in only yesterday and ordered a fine piece made up. He wanted a ruby heart pierced with a diamond arrow, but I got him off that and onto a blue Brazilian solitaire. We're mounting it in a platinum lady's ring. What is the price? Forty-five hundred, and the value is there. Have you seen the woman? Coverly nodded. The boy's a good picker. 
I don't blame her much, either, for I've seen a lot worse-looking fellas than Buddy. Hold the ring. He may change his mind. I say, Coverly was in dismay. Are you going to spoil the best sale I've made in two weeks? Oh, I'll take it off your hands if he doesn't. Make some excuse not to deliver it until I say the word. You don't know the woman, huh? Never saw her before. Gray knocked several times at the governor's suite before a sleepy response. A succession of yawns and mutterings told him that he had been heard. The door opened finally in the pride of the Briscoe family, his eyes all but swelled shut, his muscular figure splendidly arrayed in futuristic silken pajamas, mumbled, "'What's eating you, any?' The eyes opened wider. Buddy's face broke into a slow smile. "'Why, Mr. Gray?' He extended a palm a bit dry and feverish and drew his collar inside. "'Doggone, I'm glad to see you.' Gray entered with a buoyant laugh and a hearty greeting. He clapped the young giant heavily upon the back. At the blow, Buddy voiced a sharp cry and seized his head. "'Easy over the bumps. I'm carrying a cargo of nitroglycerin.' and I'll let go if you jar me, he explained. Sorry, I know how it feels. But man alive, it's afternoon. I began to think you were dead. Buddy led the way into his bedroom, piled his pillows together, and gingerly lowered himself upon them. He showed his strong white teeth in a wide grin and winked meaningly. I'll be all right directly. It's this here, Sim, sympathetic booze they talk about. Have a drink, Mr. Gray. There's a couple bottles of real liquor in the closet. Not this tiger's milk you get. The caller declined the invitation. Where the devil have you been, buddy? We were getting worried. Who, me? Oh, I've been looking around. Your mother's nearly frantic. Buddy stirred uneasily. Shaw, I'm fine. I can take care of myself. Nobody don't need to worry about me. Good, now then, you young scoundrel. I'm going to order you the sort of breakfast that goes with what ails you, and while it's coming up, you are going to jump under the shower. Where'd you get that jump stuff? The youth inquired faintly. Besides, I'm clean. But Gray had seized the phone, and as soon as he had given his order, he strode into the bathroom and turned on the water. He was out again in a moment. Then, laughingly, he dragged the aching Texan from his couch. Under you go, he insisted, or I'll wet down your whole Japanese flower garden. Some pajamas, ain't they? I got a dozen pair, Buddy said proudly. Quick, if you think I'll consent to hang around a lonesome hotel while you sleep, you're mistaken. I can't tell you how glad I am to run into you. Buddy, I'm dying to have a riotous time. Uh-huh. Briscoe turned an inquiring face to the speaker. I've been hibernating in the wilderness, sucking my paw and living off my fat like a bear. I want you to show me this town. A bath, a brisk rub-down and breakfast, put Buddy in fairly good fettle once more. So marked was his improvement, in fact, that Gray envied him his glorious gift of youth. "'Flying pretty high, aren't you?' the elder man inquired, with a wave of the hand that took in the expensive suite. "'Well, I ain't exactly broke.' "'True, but I know what these rooms cost. That's going strong for a lad like you.' You took them, didn't you, when you had less than I got? <clears throat> it is embarrassing to be held up as an example. I've done a good many things, buddy, that I wouldn't like to see you do. If they wouldn't hurt me any more than they hurt you, I'd like to try them. 
Another proof that you are still in short pants. I'm a bad person to copy. By the way, why did you quit school? Buddy considered his reply, then. I reckon it was because of them short pants you speak about. I can't stand being laughed at, Mr. Gray. It comes hard to stand up in a class along with a bunch of children and make mistakes and have a little boy in a lace collar and spring heels snap his fingers and sing out in a sweet soprano. Oh, teacher, then have him show you up. They put me in with a lot of nursing babies. What the hell? I weigh a hundred and ninety and I got a beard. Did you learn anything? Buddy closed a meaning eye and his pleasant features wrinkled into that infectious smile. I'll tell the world I did. After the whistling squabs was asleep in their nests, I went out among the whippoorwills and the bats. Ain't it funny how quick folks can learn to put up with bad grammar when you got a jingle in your jeans? I guess I've got enough education to do me. Anyhow, I can write Ozark Briscoe in the lower right-hand corner, and that seems to get me by. You wouldn't consent to go back or have a tutor like Allie. Who, me? Briscoe laughed scornfully. Uh-huh. Merely a suggestion. You are the architect of your own career. I'm fed up with that kind of schooling, Mr. Gray. Buddy's face reddened. He dropped his eyes. I don't mind telling you. I... It's like this. I kind of got a girl. No. The speaker was surprised, incredulous. Sure have. She's wonderful. She's right here in this hotel. Buddy, you're developing, Gray exclaimed with apparent admiration. I've been showing her the sights. That's what ails me this morning. She lets me take her around to places, trusts me, you understand. She thinks I'm aces. Splendid. I wish you'd ask her to dig up a friend. How do you mean? Why, well, ask her to find another good-looking girl for me. I assume she is good-looking. Then we can make it a foursome. I'm a great entertainer, and while I don't drink, I haven't the slightest objection to ladies who do. Dallas, I believe, is pretty lively. She's a stranger here, Buddy broke in stiffly. His enthusiasm had cooled. He regarded Gray with veiled displeasure. And besides, she ain't that kind of a girl. Oh, sorry, I thought from what you said, that headache, bottles in your closet, too. My mistake, Buddy. She'll take a drink with me, the youth confessed. Anyhow... She's getting so she will. I don't see anything wrong in a woman taking a drink now and then. With a man she... With a man that's honorable. The last words were voiced defiantly. Hastily, Buddy's caller averred. Nor do I. We shan't come to blows over an abstract moral issue like that. This is an age of tolerance. An age of equality. I flatter myself that I am quite as lawless and broad-minded as the average bachelor of our very smartest set. I'm, the speaker gulped, I'm going to marry her. Oh, fine. Gray's enthusiasm was positively electric. He seized Buddy's hand and crushed it. Education, indeed. No use for that now, is there? I mean, I'm going to, if I can, if she'll let me. Let you, with your money? Why should jump at the chance? No doubt you have already asked her, or she suspects. The lad shook his head. She don't have to bury nobody. She's got money, an estate. You think it's all right for me to do it? Simpler men than you have asked that question, 
and wiser men than I have refused to answer. As for me, I've never had the courage to take the plunge. However, the worst you can get is a heartbreak and a lifetime of regrets. But, of course, the woman takes some chances, too. Tell me about her. Well, beamed Buddy fatuously, I don't know hardly where to begin. Into his voice as he spoke there crept a breathless excitement, into his eyes a dumb adoration. She's wonderful. She's too good for me. Once in a while they are. She's educated, too. More in your class, Mr. Gray. I don't know how she stands for me. She's the smartest, prettiest girl. She's young, eh? She's older than I am. I reckon she's maybe twenty-five. I never asked her. Naturally. How did you meet her? When? Where? I'm a terrible romantic old fool. Gray hitched his chair closer and leaned forward, his face keen with interest. Well, sir, it's a regular story like in a book. I was in a restaurant with a couple of fellas, and a fella she was with struck her. Struck her? Yep. He was her brother, so she told me. Anyhow, I bounced him. I sure spoiled him up a lot. She was crying, and she asked me to take her home. That's how I got to know her. I suppose she cottoned to me for taking her part that away. She didn't know the sort of place it was her brother had took her. Poor kid. She's had a hard time, and every man she ever knew but me done her dirt, even her husband. But he scowled. After a moment, Gray said quietly, So she's married? She was. He's dead or something. I was bashful about calling around to see her not having anything to talk about but school and oil wells. But she took an interest right away, especially in the wells. You ought to hear the story of her life, Mr. Gray. It's as sad as any novel. You see, her folks had lots of money, but her ma died, and her pa was too busy to be bothered, so he sent her off to a convent. The nuns at the convent were so cruel to her that she run away. And went on the stage? How'd you know? I didn't but the stage is a usual refuge for convent-bred girls who are abused. I've met several. Did she? Was the old home in Virginia? Sure, maybe you know her, Buddy cried. Perhaps I seem to remember the story. What is her name? Arlene Montague. The elder man shook his head. You said something about a marriage. I dare say she married some rich John, whose family disapproved of the match. So many showgirls have been deceived like that. You can't imagine the prejudice of those Fifth Avenue parents. That's what she's done. And he went off and joined the French Legion of Honor and was killed. Foreign Legion, no doubt. Anyhow, he made no provision for her. She wouldn't have touched a penny of his money if he had left it to her. She's that honorable. Now that the lover had fairly launched himself upon the engrossing life story of his sweetheart, he was in deep earnest, and his listener's quick understanding, his sympathy, his grasp of the situation, was a spur to further confidences. It was a blessing to have a friend so old, so wise, and so worldly. What is the estate you mentioned? Oh, that's her own. It's all she has to fall back on. It's been settled up now, and she'll have her money before long. The old Virginia homestead and the slaves? Good thing she met me when she did, for them lawyers had it all tied up in court and wouldn't let go till she paid their fees. A providential meeting, truly, 
You fixed that up, of course, and got rid of the wretched bloodsuckers. I've done much the same thing, more than once. Now, one other question. How does she happen to be in Dallas? I infer from your account that she is a model of virtue, and that she accepted your aid only upon the condition that your attentions to her should be characterized by the deepest respect. So, well then, how come? That was just a lucky chance. She's got some interests here, stocks and things belonging to the estate. She don't know herself how valuable they are, but me coming right from Texas and being in oil and all, she asked me to help her out. So I got her to come. All that had kept her back was the expense. Mind you, Buddy's tone became one of deeper admiration. She ain't blue or anything. No siree. Her life's been sad, but you'd never know it. She's full of pep, always out for fun, and that's what I like about her. Gee, you gotta meet her, Mr. Gray. Well, rather, but meanwhile, we must telegraph your parents, not only that you have been found, but also the further good news. I, we'd better not say anything about my getting married. Why not? They'd like to know. I'd have wired them long ago, but you understand? Miss Montague ain't exactly Ma and Allie's kind. You're not ashamed of her? Huh? The tone of this exclamation was an eloquent denial. Then let's have them come on and get acquainted. They'll probably take right to her. But when this suggestion met with disapproval, Gray inquired, Is it because you were ashamed of them, your mother and your sister? Buddy stirred uneasily. Shaw, no. A sudden thought came to him. Why, it's this way. I haven't asked her yet. Maybe she won't have me. If she says yes, I'll let him know. Good. We'll make it, for the time being, a mere message of reassurance. Tonight you and Miss Montague shall dine with me, and we'll go to a theater. This arrangement met with young Briscoe's enthusiastic approval, and so it was left. It was with something more than mere impatience that Calvin Gray awaited the dinner hour. He was angry, restless. His mind was back in Wichita Falls, whence the message from his detective had abruptly summoned him. Matters of moment were at issue there, and with a love affair of his own upon his mind, he could think of no undertaking less to his taste than this, of saving a young fool from his folly. He could expect no thanks if he succeeded, and if he failed, he would in all probability incur Buddy's enmity, if not that of the whole Briscoe family. Families were like that. It would all take time, and meanwhile his business was bound to suffer. However, he was not one to turn back, and he remembered with a pang the last look he had seen in Ma Briscoe's eyes. Gay was prepared to find his young friend's light of love superficially attractive, and she was all of that. He was not prepared, however, to find her quite as good an actress as she appeared to be, in spite of the fact that she probably took less pleasure in the meeting than did he. She admirably covered her feelings. She was delighted, flattered, Buddy had so often spoken of him that she almost felt acquainted. She was quite excited at knowing the famous Colonel Gray. She would have recognized him anywhere from Buddy's glowing description. Gray's heart sank as he studied Miss Montague. She was blonde, to his suspicious eye a trifle too blonde, 
and she wore her hair bobbed. She was petite, and, both in appearance and in mannerisms, she was girlish. Nevertheless, she was self-reliant, and there was a certain maturity to her well-rounded figure, a suggestion of weariness about her eyes that told a story. Following his first critical appraisal, Gray was vaguely conscious of something familiar about her. Somewhere within him, the cords of remembrance were lightly brushed, but try as he would, he could not make himself believe that he had ever seen her. Probably it was the type that was familiar. He undertook to make sure by talking show business at the first opportunity. She responded with enough spontaneity to give an impression of candor, but her theatrical experiences was limited and that line of exploration led nowhere. Whatever the pose she had adopted for Buddy's benefit, it was evident now that she credited his friend with intelligence equal to her own, and recognized the futility of deceit. Therefore she made no attempt to pass as anything except an experienced young woman of the world, and Gray admired her for it. She smoked a good many cigarettes. Her taste in amusements was broad. She had sparkle and enthusiasm. She was, in fact, a vibrant young person, and referred gaily to the roadhouse whither Buddy had taken her on the night before, and where they had danced until all hours. She loved to dance. The elder man played host in his best and easiest style, both at dinner and at the theater. Then he passed the burden of entertainment over to Buddy, first cheerfully declaring that he would not be sidetracked that he intended to impose his company upon the young couple, whether they wanted him or not. This was precisely to young Briscoe's liking, and soon they were speeding out to that roadhouse mentioned earlier in the evening. But he drove, with Miss Montague by his side. The while, Gray sat alone in the back seat of the car, quietly objurgating the follies of youth and mournfully estimating his chances of surviving the night. Frankly, those chances appeared pretty slim, for Buddy drove with a death-defying carelessness. By the time they had arrived at their destination, Gray's respect for the girl had increased. She had nerves of steel. The resort was run on a rather liberal principle. A number of flushed and noisy couples were dancing to the music of a colored orchestra. It was a hip-pocket crowd, and while there was no public drinking, the high-pitched volubility of the merrymakers was plainly of alcoholic origin. Gray realized that he was in for an ordeal, for he had become too well known to escape notice. Consternation filled him, therefore, at thought of the effect his presence here might have. But the music went straight to Buddy's feet. Syncopation intoxicated him much as the throbbing of midnight drums and the pounding of tom-toms mesmerized a voodoo worshiper, and he whirled Miss Montague away in his arms without so much as an apology to his other guest. There was nothing conservative about Buddy's dancing. He embellished his steps with capricious figures, and when he had led his partner back to the table where he had left Gray, like a sailor marooned upon a thirsty atoll, he was red-faced and perspiring. His enthusiasm was boiling over. Dog gone, he cried. Now if we had something wet, huh? These pants is cut purpose for a brace of form-fitting flasks. But I left them in the room on account of your not drinking, Mr. Gray. Miss Montague, the elder man exclaimed, I'm not a killjoy, 
and I hastily resent Buddy's accusation. I have pursued folly as far as any man of my years. I'll bet him that you were a good fellow, the girl said with a smile. Exactly. Abstinence comes as much from old age as from principle, and I am in my very prime. With all vigor I defend myself against the odious charges of virtuousness. Dyspepsia alone accounts for it. You don't object to drinking? A wiser man than I has said, there are many things which we can afford to forget, which it is yet well to learn. I've had my day. May I claim the next dance? In spite of the fact that Ozark Briscoe was compelled to sit out every alternate dance in a distressing condition of sobriety, he enjoyed himself, for he was playing host to the one woman and the one man for whom he cared most. He had dreaded meeting Gray, fearing the effect of an open confession, expecting opposition. But Gray was broad-minded. He was a regular guy. In the relief of this hour, Buddy could have worshipped him except for the fact that he was too darn nice to Arlene. Nobody had the right to show her attentions as marked as his own. Gray was a man no woman could help loving. Before long, Buddy experienced a new sensation, jealousy. It was mild, to be sure, but it hurt a little. Once Miss Montague's suspicion had been allayed, she too devoted herself to having a good time. She rather enjoyed Gray and her sense of victory over him. She retired to the ladies' room, finally, to powder her nose, and when she reappeared, it was with added animation and with a new sparkle to her eyes. When next it came the elder man's turn to dance with her, he caught upon her breath a faint familiar odor, only half disguised by the peppermint lozenge that was dissolving upon her tongue, and he smiled. Evidently this charmer maintained herself in a state of constant preparedness, and her vanity bag hid secrets even from Buddy. Where had he seen her? For the hundredth time he asked himself that question, for amid these hectic surroundings that first haunting suggestion of familiarity had become more pronounced. But patient delving into the dark corners of his memory was unavailing, and her conversation afforded him no clue. As time passed, the young woman made other trips to the dressing room, returning always with an excess of brightness and a stronger breath. She assumed with Gray a coquetry which Buddy did not like. Buddy, indeed, strongly disapproved of it. But that only drove her to more daring lengths. She ventured at last to discuss the young millionaire with his friend. He's a dear boy, isn't he? And so innocent. He's learning. I'll say he is. He has learned a lot from me. Delightful task to rear the tender thought. But aren't you afraid he'll learn, for instance, why you're eating peppermints? Ho, ho! Gray's petite partner lifted her head and eyed him curiously. Do you know why? I have a suspicion, he said with a smile, that when a girl deliberately perfumes her breath, it is in preparation for the struggle in the cab. Miss Montague laughed unaffectedly. Say I could like you, Mr. Wisenbloom, in spite of the fact that I ought to hate you. Hate me, but why? Why shouldn't I? Because I'm rather nice, I dance well. You are and you do. You'd be a perfect dear if you'd only mind your own business. Buddy is of age, and you and I will get along like ham and eggs 
if you will remember that. End of chapter 20